Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from Italy, the Netherlands, Afghanistan, Brazil and Argentina, the United States, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead right-winger in history straddling the United States and Germany. Going to start out with Italy. Giorgio Maloney, the Prime Minister of Italy, whose party is the inheritor of the fascist government that ran Italy prior to and during World War II, has pulled out of the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative is a system of loans and construction projects run by the government of the People's Republic of China. Pulling out of this is a signal that Maloney intends to, you know, increase her anti-left bona fides and also part of her, like, nationalist economic push, right? You know, we don't need no help from nobody, that kind of stuff. At the same time, Maloney has also gotten formally a lot more strict about immigration to Italy. She's passed a number of laws and has advocated for even more that would penalize and seriously punish and imperil people who try to get from Africa to Italy, especially via boat. At the same time, Maloney is actually getting chiller about people who immigrate to Italy via means that they want, you know, means that would allow them to control these people's lives more extensively. Moving on to the Netherlands, the new Dutch parliament has taken office this week, still without a coalition government. This coalition government would presumably be led by Geert Wilders, the person whose party won the largest amount of votes in that country. Usually associated with leftist and liberal ideology, this new Netherlands government will be led by an extremely anti-Islamic party, Geert Wilders' party, which has pledged, among other things, to eliminate all Muslim schools from the entirety of the Netherlands. How exactly that's going to be accomplished in a country that has full legal protections for all religious practices remains to be seen. The fact that there isn't a coalition yet isn't exactly a surprise. The Netherlands takes quite a long time to create political coalitions normally. Uh, the last time that the Netherlands got a new political coalition, it took nine months to negotiate its completion. But there's also been no progress on it whatsoever. So who knows how long it's going to take this time. Continuing on the theme of education, the right-wing government of the Taliban in Afghanistan has continued its assault on its educational system. The Taliban has passed a series of laws that discriminate against the education of women and also the participation of women in the educational system at all. This means that young women and girls are largely barred from formal educational institutions in the country, but also the Taliban has recently essentially banned women from teaching. This means that a large number of people who were previously employed in educating the few youths in Afghanistan who were allowed to get formal education, you know, essentially only boys, that a lot of those people, skilled educators, are now without a job. And those young men are now without teachers. This has meant that a number of unqualified men have moved in to take their place, to take these jobs that they're not qualified for. This is a disaster for the educational system of the country and also a disaster for the country's youth. Moving on to South America, there is a brewing row between Lula de Silva, the president of Brazil, and Javier Millet, the incoming president of Argentina. This is no surprise. Lula is a leftist president. You know, he represents the Workers' Party in Brazil and has led that country to a form of 
government interventionist, but still essentially capitalist economic prosperity. Millet is an incoming extreme right-wing libertarian president who is entering the government of Argentina at one of its greatest economic crises since the year 2000-2001, when Argentina had an economic crisis so bad that it almost completely toppled their government and also, you know, eliminated several currencies. It was, it was, a, it was a terrible, terrible deal. What's happening now is that Lula is not going to come to Millet's inauguration, a serious political slight that indicates that Millet and uh, his mo most powerful neighbor, Lula da Silva, are going to come out the gate as oppositional forces. Moving on to the United States, this one is, you know, about the United States, but it's also about the entire world. Earlier this week, there was a conversation amongst a bunch of right-wing influencers online. Among these people were Nick Fuentes, probably the leading white nationalist ideologue, not just in the United States, but internationally, and also Richard Spencer, the person who popularized the phrase alt-right and who was one of the big leaders of the right-wing, extremist right-wing coalition that was part of Donald Trump's ascension to the presidency in 2016. Fuentes, Spencer, and a number of other people who spoke during this conference online said openly that they believed that Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, the social media platform, and its transformation into X, a sort of like weird 4chan light thing, that is what Elon Musk wants it to be, these white nationalists have said openly that they think that Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter has made it a platform for white nationalism. They think that it has enabled white nationalist ideology and white nationalist perspectives to be openly shared on that platform, and that this change has made their ideology a lot more palatable to a lot of people. This is an extremely worrying thing. This means that people whose literal job it is to make racism and white nationalism more acceptable to mainstream American and mainstream world audiences think that the most powerful person in the world is doing their job for them. He is doing a lot of work to, to enable white nationalism to have a bigger platform on his, one of the biggest platforms in social media. They think that this has made Twitter a welcome place for the growth of the extreme white wing, and they think that white identitarianism and whiteness are more culturally palatable as ideas and political positions in the wake of Elon Musk's acquisition of the company. Moving on to Trump news, we have some news and updates in the four upcoming eventual trials that Donald Trump will face because of, you know, for various things, right? You know, there's uh, financial irregularities, there's document mishandling. In this case, I'm specifically talking about his attempts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. Now, it has long been known that Mike Pence, Donald Trump's former vice president, is a potential witness in this case. What we now know, and this is being reported by the Associated Press and also by other uh, news outlets, we now know that Mike Pence is probably on a short list of people who might actually be asked to go to the stand and speak against Donald Trump in this upcoming trial, which will, uh, you know, intentionally, like the, the, the idea is for it to happen early next year. And this means that Mike Pence could get on the stand and possibly be televised or at least be like recorded speaking out and saying that Donald Trump attempted to use his political power to overturn the election 
in the state of Georgia in order to give him a better shot at winning the presidency. Now, none of this would be new information. We already know that Donald Trump did all of this stuff. The question is just, will Mike Pence actually do that? You know, is he willing to tank his chances with the, you know, over half of Republicans who just really like Donald Trump in order to get at his former political rival and then kind of boss? This is entirely possible that Mike Pence wanna, might want to do this because remember, Donald Trump incited a mob that was entirely willing to kill Mike Pence on January 6th, 2021. So, you know, if Mike Pence is the kind of guy who holds a grudge, he might want to do this. In other Trump trial news, Eric Trump has said that he's not going to testify in the, you know, the, the money related case, the, the, the New York civil case against the Trump organization related to their lying about loan acquisition. Eric Trump says that he's not going to testify because Donald Trump said he shouldn't. You know, he's just going to listen to his dad and not do it. In further GOP news, today, as I'm recording this, Wednesday, December the 6th, 2023, the GOP is going to have a debate this evening. Uh, and this is, you know, a further instance of what people have been derisively calling the vice presidential debates. Donald Trump is still not going to be there, and it's still unlikely that anything is going to be said or anything is going to happen that's really going to shake up the race. Donald Trump is massively ahead in all fundraising efforts and also in all opinion polling for the Republican nomination. Basically, the question is, who could be second place for the Republican Party? Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis? It remains unclear exactly what these people think that they're going to get out of placing second. Are they going to be Donald Trump's vice presidential pick? Probably not if they're too mean to him. Or are they trying to pick up the slack when Donald Trump, you know, thinking that he's going to get like indicted or go to jail or something? Is, is that what the idea is? It remains to be seen. Finally, I want to note that two mass shootings have occurred this week in the United States, at least so far, as of my recording this, like I said, Wednesday afternoon, December 6th. One of them occurred in Austin and potentially also in uh, other cities in Texas. And another one took place on a campus in Las Vegas, Nevada, a college campus. Motives remain unclear as of the Wednesday afternoon when I'm recording this, but I mention them because mass shootings on college campuses are often gender-related or are often right-wing-related, and so that is why I brought them up on this podcast. I am hopeful that I am wrong about those motivations, just as I am hopeful that there will be no more mass shootings in the United States, but I remain unfortunately pessimistic about both of those hopes. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about Fritz Julius Kuhn, a German citizen and eventual American citizen who led the German-American Bund. Kuhn was born in Munich in 1896. He served in World War I for the German Empire, did very well for himself, actually got the Iron Cross, a pretty high level of distinction. After World War I, he became a chemical engineer. He immigrated to Mexico for work, and then finally ended up in Detroit, the Midwest, where there are a lot of German people in the United States. He became a citizen of the United States in 1934, and then moved to Buffalo, New York in 1936. This would remain his big operating place, Buffalo, New York, and also the sort of wider New England area. In Buffalo, he became the leader of the local Bund, the German-American Bund. The Bund was an organization that was 
sort of indirectly tied to the German state. And at this time, remember, it's, it's the 1930s. This is the Nazi German state. It was a German-sponsored organization whose goal was to advance the causes of German identity and Nazi ideology among German-Americans, who at the time, and also still today, were the largest ethnic group of U.S. citizens in the country, right? So the German Bund was, at the very least, a, an opportunity to organize U.S. citizens against potential intervention against Nazi Germany in the case of war, and at the very worst, could have been a fifth column, an organization that could have worked against the United States in the eventuality of the United States' entering a war with Germany. Kuhn eventually politicked his way into the national leadership of the German-American Bund and was extremely successful and very popular in the position. He organized trips to Germany for German-Americans to see the quote-unquote successes of Hitler's regime. He and other delegates even met Hitler during the lead-up to the 1936 Olympics, which were held in Berlin that year. Kuhn and the Bund continued to organize against the United States government and in favor of the Nazis throughout the lead-up to the war. This lead-up and their organizing culminated most spectacularly and most famously in a 1939 massive rally at Madison Square Garden in New York City. This rally had 20,000 attendees and was focused on attacking then-President Theodore Roosevelt and calling him Jewish and calling his ideology Jewish, saying also that communism is Jewish, and promoting the idea that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis and other German leaders were, in fact, the people who really wanted peace and really wanted prosperity, not just for white people, but for people all around the world. This rally was very openly and violently confronted by anti-fascists, as it should have been. This got the Bund in quite more significant trouble than it had been before. Later that year, in 1939, the government of New York tried to stop the Bund from organizing so openly, partly because of a ramp-up in the United States' potential engagement in the war, you know, mostly through Lend-Lease, through, through providing arms to other people who were eventually going to be fighting Germany, and also because, you know, they're fascists. The government of New York did this in the way that the United States government has been stopping fascists for a long time, up to and including, for example, Donald Trump they investigated Fritz Kuhn's finances. They eventually found out that he had embezzled some $14,000 from the Bund and alleged that he had spent those on a mistress. Uh, Kuhn was eventually convicted by then New York District Attorney Thomas Dewey, who would incidentally eventually become the GOP nominee for president in 1944 and 1948. Kuhn spent the rest of the war in prison uh, his citizenship was eventually revoked in 1943, essentially because he had gotten U.S. citizenship in order to be a, an embedded foreign agent for the Nazi German government. He stayed in prison until the end of the war, until he was deported back to Germany. He lived freely from 1944 to 1947 until he was gotten with denazification laws in West Germany. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison for being a Nazi agent. He got off with just two and then he lived the rest of his life from 1949 up until his death, freely as a relatively unknown chemist. He died alone uh, this week in history, December 14th, 1951. So, Fritz Kuhn, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson. Thank you, Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Instead of my Patreon, check out Medicine Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, or the Gaza Children's Fund. And I am continuing to do question and answer episodes, trying to do some of those for my Tuesday episodes. So if you want to reach out and ask me a question, please do so either at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com, which is the email address associated with this podcast. You can reach me on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. I'm also on Twitter at fascism15. That's spelled out. And I am on Blue Sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C. That's 15 mins of fash. Thanks very much, and I will talk to you next week. Thank you.